Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Fear of Angels, the seventh part of the Eradication of Vice Series 7, written by Salome Verdad. Archie's predicament deepens as he spies for both the contending factions within the British Women's Association for the Eradication of Vice, seals secret plans for the Anarcho-Syndicalist Federation, and is subjected to the monstrous attentions of the mysterious angel that dwells in the basement of the association's secret laboratory at Wilvilliscombe. Still locked in a cruel brass chastity device and subject to the lascivious whims of his attractive but debauched wife, the time has come for Archie to pick a side in the coming conflict. And now for your listening pleasure. An excerpt from Fear of Angels. Fear of Angels. A Fendom steampunk story. The seventh part of the Eradication of Vice series. By Salome Verdad. A brief recap of our story so far. A strange codicil to the will of his wealthy great-aunt renders financially embarrassed aristocrat idler Archie Dunstable, subject to the moral discipline of the British Women's Association for the Eradication of Vice, a fanatical organization dedicated to the suppression of all illicit sexual pleasure in the male sex. Entangled in a fierce factional dispute within the association between the old guard, who seek to suppress male desire, and the modernizers, who want to use its energy for unknown purposes, and recruited as a reluctant incendiarist by the anarcho-syndicalist women, who provide him with a strange kind of sexual relief in return for his help in striking at the association. Archie finds himself married to the lavicious Elsa Bucklesham, who has her own ideas about the control of male sexuality, while Archie's anarcho-syndicalist comrades recruit him to steal the plans for the Air Navy's newest dirigible, the modernising faction within the association bring him to the secret laboratory of Professor Wilhelm Reich, where he witnesses a horrible procedure for the harvesting of sexual energy, and then is himself forced to submit to the attentions of the mysterious angel that lives beneath the house at Fivelliscombe. Now listen to the latest instalment of our story. Archie stares along the platform at the trains pulling in and out of Marylebone Station. Usually this is the happiest part of his day, when he has escaped from the discipline of Bucklesham Towers and is not yet subject to the drudgery of his role as a member of the House of Commons. The sight of the huge locomotives, with their great huffing engines and gleaming paintwork, always lifts his spirits, reminding him of the empire and progress and the ease and comfort that the age of steam represents. The hiss of the pistons, the polished brasswork, the sharp odour of coal smoke are usually the occasion of a pleasant revelry. Now, though, it seems that nothing can raise him from his dejection. He contemplates throwing himself into the path of an oncoming train. It would not take too much effort. And then, a quick death, though perhaps not such a pleasant one. How did that thing go, that people said at times like this? By a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. These last days he has thought of suicide often, 
This is entirely unfamiliar to his character, because Archie has always been an incorrigible optimist, a member of the school of something will turn up. Indeed, it has been his unwavering commitment to this philosophy that accounts, in no small way, to his present condition. If he had only made plans, any plans, to slow his descent into debt, he might not have been forced to succumb to the discipline of the damnable British Women's Association for the Eradication of Vice. His penis would not be locked into a fierce brass chastity device, and he would not be at the mercy of his increasingly debauched and cruel wife. Most of all, he would never have been to the country house outside Vivelscombe, and he would never have been subjected to the monstrous experimental procedures of the lunatic Professor Reich, or have encountered the awful, terrible, unspeakable creature that the woman and the professor refer to as an angel, though he was sure that heaven had never ever been the domain of a creature such as this. It had been three days since his fateful encounter with the... with whatever it was. He had not seen the entity, but he had experienced her. He had felt, rather than heard, her voice, speaking to him from within his own mind, and he had felt her embrace. Not a physical embrace, because no part of the unseen creature had touched him, and yet some tendril, some horrible appendage, had reached into his soul. He could not describe how it looked, because he had seen nothing, but the sensation of bristles, scales, something at once glittering and slimy and rough, was real for all that it was a mental rather than a physical encounter. The business had begun badly enough when Elsa had led him to that awful chair in Reich's laboratory. His wife, his mother-in-law, and Mrs. Sandridge had watched in fascination as the nurse strapped him in and prepared him. He had suppressed a gasp as the bulb had been pushed into his anus, and had sighed with all too brief relief as the Chedworth device had been removed from his member, only to be replaced by the warm embrace of the rubber-lined vacuum capsule. Then the silver crown, connected by wires to the apparatus of the chair, had been placed on his head. Why had he allowed himself to submit to this? Even then he could have given the professor a black eye and made a run for it. He might at least try to resist instead of going like a lamb to the slaughter. He had done this all along, had taken the path of least resistance, since the day that he had first fallen into the clutches of the association. He could have refused to submit at the very beginning, and taken his chances with his creditors, instead of which he had. Archie did not know the answer to this, and his mind, which he would be the first to admit was not the keenest, even at the best of times is in no state to apply itself to difficult questions. Perhaps it is something to do with his optimistic disposition, his belief that there was no situation that he could not turn to his advantage. That had clearly not been the case at Vivelscombe. Bound tightly to the chair, he had squirmed and shifted as the capsule began to hiss and to squeeze his hardening cock. At first, the pressure had been delicious, an old familiar sensation that he had almost forgotten, 
It had been like penetrating the hottest, wettest, tightest cunt that he had ever known. The rubber interior of the capsule had contracted rhythmically, and the delight had been such that he could ignore, even, dare he allow himself to think it, to enjoy the countervailing pressure of the rubber bulb in his ass. Twelve bions, the professor had said, as Archie had begun to feel the first stirrings of an impending ejaculation. Bravo, Archie, Elsa had said, then with that wicked smile that always spelled some new discomfort for him. She had continued, But don't you think we can risk bringing him a little closer to the edge hair, Professor, so that we can extract a little more orgone for the visitor? The Professor had clicked his heels and bowed slightly to the three women. See if you can increase the intensity without pushing him into the red zone, Spradingham, he had said. The red-headed nurse had made some adjustments to the dials and levers beside the chair, and the cadence of the capsule's contractions had increased slightly. Archie had felt himself draw closer to the point of spending. Would he be allowed? You see, Herr Professor, Archie is producing fourteen bions now, Elsa had said with obvious pride. Very good, Mrs. Dunsterborn, the professor had replied. Don't you dare spend, Archie, dearest, his wife had said. If you do, your organ production will cease at once. Have no fear on that score, the professor had replied. I have complete confidence in the apparatus. There is no danger that Mr. Dunsterborn will ejaculate. The capsule was now pulsing with ferocious regularity, and Archie's hips had begun to lift in the chair. Despite himself, he had groaned, and the three women had tittered at his discomfort. You see, now the needle is approaching the red zone, said the professor, and the pressure will automatically adjust. Archie had become aware at once that this was correct. A moment ago, he had been on the brink of spending. Now the capsule was squeezing his member more gently and contracting less often. Then the needle has moved out of the danger zone. The rhythm will pick up again, Reich continued. Mr. Dunstiborn is a very good subject, and I think we can expect several hours of fruitful production before his supply of organ is exhausted. No, please, don't! Archie had protested to the obvious amusement of his wife and mother-in-law. We need not observe for the entire period, the professor had said. We can leave Mr. Dunsterborn in the capable hands of Nurse Braddingham, and we can take tea in the parlour. Before they had departed, Elsa had bent over his shackled body. Without meaning to, he had inhaled her fragrance, and a sigh had emerged, unbidden from his chest. She had kissed him voraciously, her tongue penetrating his mouth as the rubber bulb pulsed in his anal cavity. Don't let me down, Archie, she had said, as she had departed with her mother and Mrs. Sandridge. When the others had gone, Nurse Braddingham had busied herself with paperwork, glancing up at the dials only occasionally. The mechanism of the chair had throbbed and hissed, 
and the capsule had continued to bring him almost to the point of climax, and then to withhold its caresses so that he fell back from the brink. His eye had been drawn unwillingly to the tight curve of the nurse's skirt, to her large and firm breasts that seemed to want to burst from her starched white blouse, to her full lips and wide mouth. Her skin was very pale, which seemed to accentuate the redness of her hair and her lips. As the capsule had masturbated him without mercy, he had whimpered, he had moaned and cursed, but the nurse might as well have been deaf for all the notice that she had taken. Then suddenly he had become aware of the presence of another being. No one else had entered the awful chamber where he had been bound on that chair, and yet he had known that someone, something, was there. First there had been a feeling of being observed by something that was invisible and not outside himself. He had not understood it, but he had known that he was being watched from inside his own brain. Something strange and horrible had entered his mind from outside. He could not see it, but he was aware of a dark shape in a long and iridescent gown and transparent gauzy wings then there had been the sense of being spoken to, not in words exactly, but he had nevertheless been aware of thoughts, with the shape of sounds again inside his head. The sounds were grotesque, like words formed from the rustling of dry leaves, and suffused with a sense that they were driven by a powerful, lustful appetite. He had looked across at Nurse Braddingham, but the woman had obviously heard nothing and continued fussing at the papers on the desk, oblivious to the presence that was now in the room. And then, then the thing that was inside his head had begun to drink his life force. He could not put the feeling into words, could not have described it to save his life, but he knew that something alien and dark and unnatural was sucking energy from his mind. He had heard a horrible shrieking sound, and had realised that it was coming from his own mouth. Only then had the nurse left the paperwork on the desk and languidly strolled across the room to study the dials on the apparatus. She's taken your organ now, she had said, as much to herself as to him, and as if what was happening was the most natural thing in the world. You're down to eight bounds already, about another half an hour, I'd say. Archie could not say whether the presence of the thing inside him, sucking hungrily at his mind, had continued for half an hour or half a year. Even now, days later, he could not be sure whether he had remained conscious or not. The ghastly sensation had seemed to go on for an eternity, but he did not remember it coming to an end. The next thing that he remembered was being taken down from the chair by the professor and three male assistants, who'd laid his inert body on a stretcher. He passed out again, and then he had been in the gondola of the dirigible, beside his wife, fully dressed, and with the Chedworth device once again, fastened tightly around his cock and balls. Not that he cared, because he knew he would never want to be erect, or to spend, ever again. He was sure of that. The dreadful recollection which had not faded as the days have passed, again puts into his mind the thought of ending himself, 
as if the fact that such horrors existed in the world, and that his wife, his own wife, who he had already known to be vicious, and a levicious, cruel minx, was in some way a devotee, an acolyte, a worshipper of that awful thing. As if that was not enough, then there was the thought of what must surely await him at the House of Commons. He had departed abruptly, before the plans of the Grimshaw Dirigible had been returned to his office. He had intended to borrow them from the Admiralty Registry for only a few hours, so that the anarchist gang to which he had reluctantly become allied could make their own copies. But something had gone wrong. By now the plot, and his part in it, had no doubt been revealed, and he would be disgraced and perhaps hanged as a traitor. So why was he even returning to his office in the house? Perhaps he now courted this disgrace, and the execution that would follow, as a kind of ending. Though would the details about the Chedworth device, and his subjection, become public after the hanging? Should he care? The thoughts contend in his brain, but he continues to plod along the platform. He reaches the ticket barrier, and nods absently at the uniformed station guard. He is a familiar figure now and rarely needs to show his House of Commons pass. But there are two bowler-hatted men, squat and burly, and they are waiting for him. The men have identical moustaches, and they both wear long and slightly shabby raincoats, though it is a dry and warm day. One of them produces a leather wallet, and shows Archie a silver badge within, whipping it away before he can inspect it. I am Inspector Side of the special branch, Mr. Dunstabourne, he says. His voice is nasal and slightly strangulated, as if there is some kind of obstruction in his throat. And this is Detective Sergeant Sherdington. Would you mind coming with us? I haven't done anything. I'm, I'm very late. Important parliamentary business, stammers Archie. This will only take a few moments, says Inspector Side, in a voice that is obviously intended to be reassuring. Just a few questions. We have a room that we can use in the station, courtesy of the railway police. Sheridan places a hand on Archie's elbow, and they lead him through a small service door that he has never noticed. There is a maze of narrow corridors, and then they are sitting in a small bare office. There is a stained wooden table, three hard chairs, a fly-spotted calendar, and a grey metal filing cabinet. This is a rather delicate matter, Mr. Dunstabourne, says Side. He has extracted a notebook and pencil from his pocket, and now he turns the pencil over and over in his fingers. It concerns treason in high places. Do you know what I am talking about? I have absolutely no idea, says Archie, with a little confidence returning to his voice. He has decided to admit nothing, at least until he has to. To be direct, sir, it concerns the man with whom you share an office at the House of Commons, says Sherdington. We have reason to believe he may be involved in some kind of espionage as an agent of a foreign power. Shit house? I, I mean, 
What house? Says Archie, with incredulity. There is no love lost between Archie and his fellow MP, Horsley Woodhouse. The possibility that the suspicion that should rightly fall on himself will be deflected onto the other man is the best thing that has happened to him for weeks. I'm afraid so, says Side. We suspect that he has been using the pneumatic telegraph in your office and your sign-in key to request secret documentation from the Admiralty, and then passing that same documentation on to foreign spies, Russians or Germans. Really? But that's incredible! Unspeakable! says Archie, trying not to show the relief that is washing over him like a flood. What led you to suspect him? I'm afraid we cannot say, says Side, touching the side of his nose. The less said and all that. But we've had our eye on him for a while. There have been a few episodes with parliamentary appropriations, that sort of thing. And now this. Well, he does have a lot of meetings with outsiders, says Archie. Businessmen mainly, from all over. Now you come to mention it. He is warming to the idea that it might be Woodhouse, rather than himself, who is exposed as a traitor. I know that this might be difficult, sir, says Side, but we'd like you to keep an eye on him for us. Just drop us a note every so often about what he's been up to. Do you think you could manage that? I'm not. It seems like being a sneak, begins Archie, and it might be a breach of parliamentary ethics. But it is for the good of the country, isn't it? It is, says Side firmly. Here, take my card. There's a telegraph address on it. Just a note whenever he does anything that seems suspicious. And don't put yourself in any danger. Of course, says Archie. I'm not much of a one for danger, he adds. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Fear of Angels. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.